0: Time for Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defence Lawyers. Morning, Michael. How are we doing? Hey, good morning. I'm doing great. Always good to be here. What is on the docket for this week? Uh,
1: The first case on the docket this week is a uh, brand new case out of the Supreme Court of Canada uh, that uh, has introduced a uh, good test, which they've referred to as the manifestly frivolous test (laughs) Hmm. Uh, that is to be uh, applied in certain circumstances in criminal cases. Um, And by way of some background, this is uh, came out of a B.C. case uh, that has been sometimes referred to as the Surrey six murders. Hmm. Uh, And the background of that is back in 2014 in Surrey, uh, there was a gang dispute over the drug trade uh, and there was a a brutal murder uh, that uh, included uh, these six victims in. All six men were uh, shot multiple times at close range and sort of execution style killing uh, of uh, people that were rival drug uh, uh, dealers and then a couple of just hapless individuals. One person who was there servicing a fireplace uh, and then some other person who lived across the hall. Um, So just a terrible, uh, terrible crime. Um, And the trial of this case became exceedingly complicated. Um, and but uh, some of the complication uh, had to do with uh, allegations of misconduct in the course of the investigation. Uh, and sometimes, in these kind of cases, they're sort of the uh, serious crime high profile cases, there can, of course, be great pressure uh, to solve the murder, right? Yeah. Um, And as well, there can be great difficulty in trying to solve the murder, right? You're dealing with, uh, you know, uh, alleged uh, gang members and so on. It uh, it can be hard. Yes. Uh, And so uh, the trial went on with all of these various applications, including uh, suggestions that two of the two police officers were engaged in exploitative sexual relationships with witnesses, Mm Uh, allegations that um, there was misconduct in terms of handling of informants and uh, uh, all sorts of things. Um, And uh, all of those sort of proceeded along. One of the interesting things that happened during the course of the trial was that there was an application to do with whether information was properly the result of informer privilege, Hmm. which is a kind of privileged uh, information that can be kept secret, right, to uh, protect the identity of uh, secret informants, right, just to give you some sense of the kind of case it was. And for that particular challenge, the judge wouldn't allow the accused to be in the courtroom or the accused lawyers to be in the courtroom, instead appointing an amicus, another lawyer to argue that so that the accused or their lawyers couldn't find out who the secret informant was, right, to give you an idea of how intricate and complicated this trial became. At the end of the at the end of all of this these uh, the two men here were convicted but before the conviction was entered the accused lawyers applied for a stay of proceedings uh, arguing uh, that uh, there had been a series of uh, things that amounted to what they claimed were an abusive process they pointed to things including the alleged police conduct with the witnesses uh, they also uh, alleged Uh, that there was harsh and inhumane treatment for the accused. They alleged they were kept in uh, solitary confinement for 14 months in filthy cells smeared with feces and blood without natural light. Uh, And then the final part of it was uh, uh, alleging uh, that there was uh, improper conduct in the course of how the informant was handled, that part of the trial which was secret even from the accused. And so... The uh, accused lawyers applied to the judge saying, hey, this is uh, all uh, an abusive process, you shouldn't allow this to continue, look at all these things together, you need to stop this. Uh, And the judge considered that uh, and the judge concluded that um, they weren't going to hear the application. They said, well, we don't think there's enough here, this is such a brutal and serious uh, crime and no doubt it was. and so refused to even hear the application on its merits, like not allowing evidence to be called uh, about the things that were being alleged, and just said, no, I'm not going to hear it. Um, That got appealed, not surprisingly, uh, to the BC Court of Appeal, who said, no, that was not proper, it should have been heard. Uh, The Court of Appeal agreed, and then the Crown appealed that to the Supreme Court of Canada, which is what produced the decision that just came out. And so what the uh, Supreme Court of Canada here is dealing with is the threshold in a criminal case when usually the defense is making an application of some kind. It could be to exclude evidence or for a stay of proceedings or sort of various other things that might occur during the course of a trial. And it's been clear for some time that judges have some authority to uh, not hear applications if they're not obviously going to work right? Mm -hmm. On the theory that we don't want to waste time, right? I'm saying, well, you know, this could not succeed. uh, Forget it. I'm not going to waste a day hearing this is never getting anywhere. No. Right. With the idea of trying to promote uh, efficient trials, that would be the theory of it. Now, a couple of problems have developed. One is that the standard for that has been different all across the country. So different provinces are all off kind of going in their own direction. Um, and then another problem that's developed with it is that sometimes these hearings to decide whether there should be a hearing themselves take up all sorts of time, right? A hearing so to decide rather, if
0: there should be a hearing. Okay.
1: Oh, oh, only only a group of lawyers could come up with that, right? Sort of the crown saying, "Hey, there shouldn't we shouldn't have to have this hearing? Let's have a hearing about whether there should be a hearing." <laughs> Literally. Okay. And so the Supreme Court of Canada has now sort of put its foot down and said, "Look." there is authority for a trial judge to refuse to even hear an argument, right? But that's pretty remarkable, right? Somebody saying, hey, I'm on trial for murder. (laughs) I want to make an argument saying I'm not even going to hear it, right? Um, Sort of what you're, I guess, paid for as a judge. You have to hear everything, right, to make decisions. Yeah. Um, And so the Supreme Court of Canada has indicated that, while judges do have an authority to refuse to hear an application, uh, which is sort of in keeping with Uh, you know, getting rid of things that just aren't going to work and to keep trials moving, right? They've applied a very high threshold to when judges are allowed to say no to even hearing the application. And, And the threshold they've applied is this the language they've used is a judge has to be satisfied that the application is manifestly frivolous. Manifestly and frivolous well, okay. manifestly frivolous okay you're in bad shape when your application is uh, gets the stamp of manifestly frivolous um, and so the idea there is that uh manifestly would mean obviously right and frivolous would be necessarily going to fail and so what the Supreme Court of Canada has said here to trial judges is saying look when somebody comes with an application, like the accused in this case, right, saying the you know solitary confinement and sexual activity by the police and whatever went on in that secret hearing, um, should lead to the crowd or the, ju- the judge staying the proceedings. Saying this just can't proceed. It's so man so unfair, right? Yeah. That the way a judge has to approach that is the judge has to assume that the things being claimed are true, right? When somebody's saying, hey. I want to lead uh, evidence about uh, my client being left in a filthy cell for 14 months, smeared with feces. Right? Yeah. A judge has to has to assume, okay, I'm, assuming you prove that, right? You have mm-hmm. to assume that's true, right? Or you say, well, I'm going to allege that the police were having you know improper sexual relations with the witnesses in the murder trial. You have to assume that happened, right? And then the judge has to ask himself, if you assume all of that is true, and you draw the most favorable inferences to the person making the application, could it succeed, right? And only if a judge says, yes, if I believe everything that you're claiming and draw the worst inferences that could be drawn as a result of all the things you're claiming, if it can only be dismissed and say, I'm not hearing it, if you conclude that even with that, it could not succeed, right? So the idea is that you, you can't just do some weighing of it and think, well, I'm not sure I believe that the cells were that bad. Or, you know, I don't know whether you're you know really going to get evidence of the police having sexual activity with the witnesses. I don't know about all that. Right. Mm-hmm. You can't do that as a trial judge. Mm-hmm. And the Supreme Court of Canada and the Court of Appeal here found that, for example, when the judge was analyzing the kind of evidence that might come out with respect to the secret hearing, which, again, is a pretty remarkable thing. Right. Think about that. You're on trial. <laughs> There's a part of your trial which you can't show up at, right, to keep the information secret, right? Yeah. And so the Supreme Court of Canada and the Court of Appeal and now the Supreme Court of Canada has said, no, this was a mistake. There was if you accepted that all these things being claimed were true, um, it is not obvious <laughs> that this could not succeed, right? And so it was improper for the judge to just say, nope, you can't have a hearing about this. Um, And so it's been sent back, and now there will have to be that kind of a hearing unless the judge can be satisfied that the um, uh, application is manifestly frivolous, which plainly isn't going to happen here, given the language from the Supreme Court of Canada. But in addition to the impact it's going to have on this case, it's going to have an impact on many other cases. Um, And the, the impact is going to be, first of all, in many circumstances, I expect to do away with... The hearing to determine if there should be a hearing, right? Uh, Because if somebody is alleging, hey, this or that ought to happen for reasons A, B, and C, the judge is required to conclude A, B, and C, okay, if you proved A, B, and C all happened, could you get what you're asking for, right? And if the answer to that is, yeah, that could happen, uh, then on to the hearing, uh, and so, uh, I guess it'll have a couple of effects. First of all, it'll prevent sort of decisions on the merits rather than just say I'm not hearing it. Uh, and second of all, uh, unfortunately, the uh, I think some of the hope when trial judges were thinking, well, if we can just screen things out, things might move faster, uh, has really come to naught. And, and I think really, it, in some cases, has meant that legitimate issues wind up getting litigated twice Hmm. they're litigated first of all on the basis of should we have a hearing about this (laughs) and then you spend a day arguing about that and then you say yes yes we should have a hearing and then you go on to spend the day on the actual hearing whereas if you cut out the first part you probably could have get it got it all done more expeditiously so the hope here is that now that we have this clear direction from the supreme court of canada and a clear test which is a very high hurdle um it'll provide some Uh, clarity for trial judges in terms of what they are and are not permitted to do and it'll provide a consistent standard across the country um, so that we don't have uh, different things happening in all kinds of different places and that's one of the functions of course the Supreme Court of Canada uh, provides right you know the courts a hierarchy (laughs) uh, and the Supreme Court of Canada is at the top of the pyramid and so when it provides this kind of direction it then clarifies it for everyone across the country and we can all get on the same uh, page Uh, And for the D.C. case, uh, I guess we will now have to wait and see uh, what evidence the uh, judge does accept uh, about uh, these allegations. Uh, And then we'll get a decision about uh, whether there should have been a uh, or should be a a stay of proceedings, even for this kind of uh, brutal and serious case. Of course, the allegations are extremely serious, right? So we'll have to wait and see and we'll get a uh, decision on the merits uh, rather than a, a decision uh, waving off the uh, request for a decision. Uh, so that's
0: where uh, the new test of manifestly frivolous comes from. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Legally Speaking will continue in just a moment on CFAX 1070. Legally Speaking continues with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, up next on the docket here, I'm reading a Victoria used car manager wrongful dismissal claim dismissed what's the story yeah <laughs> that's exactly right well as we've spoken about
1: before uh, a, an employer uh, who employs somebody who's not in a member of a union that's an important distinction mm-hmm. um, is free to fire an employee at any time for any precious reason they might come up with right I uh, see I don't like the color of your shoes today but uh, if you do that uh, without cause like without a sufficient legal reason uh for firing somebody, uh then you can be subject to having to pay the person uh you fired, the employer is, uh and the idea of the payment would be pay in lieu of notice, right? Uh now it's a different circumstance if somebody's in the union, right? If somebody in the union is fired uh without uh, cause, they can actually be ordered back into their job whether <laughs> yeah. or like it or not. Uh but uh, for somebody who's not in a union, your remedy if you're fired without proper cause would be a claim for money, which would be pay in lieu of uh, notice. So, uh, this case—it's a local case—involved a fellow who was a manager of a used car uh, dealership. I think they had more than one location. Uh, and he was paid very well, I must say. As I read it, this is uh, probably should be some employment advice for uh, young people thinking about what they want to do. Uh, he had an employment contract that paid a guaranteed minimum of $25,000 per month uh, for six months. Then it went up to a guarantee of $35,000 per month, uh, plus various bonuses, I guess, on how many cars were sold. Uh, so I guess the other takeaway would be maybe you should negotiate a bit harder if you're buying a used car. It seems to be lots of money in the business. Uh, now, the uh, car used car manager, um, the reason for the firing was that, uh, the uh, owner of the uh, business
0: yeah.
1: uh, determined that uh, he had made uh, an improper uh, expense claim for a at a restaurant for a dinner and a breakfast, hmm. uh, and the improper claim was that he wrote on the receipts claiming he was having the dinner and breakfast with other employees when in fact it was with his wife. Okay, hmm. that was the uh, what he had uh, what he had done, hmm. uh, and uh, he was confronted with that. Hey, what about this? Uh, And he didn't fess up to it. Uh, And the result of not fessing up to it, he was given a second opportunity to fess up to it. He still didn't. And so the uh, uh, owner of the uh, business said, I've lost faith in you in terms of being trustworthy. You're fired uh, Mm -hmm. over the uh, two meal receipts. Uh, And so the uh, manager, uh, having lost his $35,000 a month used car management job, sued. Uh, and alleged that that wasn't uh, sufficient cause to fire him uh, and argue that he should be uh, entitled to some significant compensation given what his salary was. Uh, And so that's the case that went to trial. Uh, And the judge in this case ultimately concluded that no. um, The fact, even though uh, you've got this high-paid employee, and even though the receipts here, the two receipts for the dinner and breakfast totaled approximately $250 but despite the fact that the amount of money wasn't substantial uh, the judge found that it was reasonable for the employer to terminate him uh, on the basis that they had simply lost uh, trust uh, in this person who had a a, a job that did involve a significant amount of trust and responsibility Hmm. Uh, and furthermore the judge in coming to that conclusion found that it was significant uh, that he was given these two opportunities to fess up to it. And he didn't fess up to it, right? Mm. Yeah. Uh, And uh, even at the uh, trial itself, uh, the judge uh, ultimately uh, found that he had uh, difficulty uh, with respect to the evidence of the uh, the plaintiff, the former manager, Mm. uh, when he testified uh, that he was struggling to recall uh, the reason for the receipts. Uh, The judge found that Um, He wasn't struggling to recall what went on. Uh, He was struggling uh, having been caught in uh, a deception of his employer. Uh, And so that didn't go down well either, I suspect. Uh, And so the net result of all this is that the uh, manager is out of the job. He was fired. uh, And the uh, judge concluded that the employer did have uh, just cause for the dismissal. And so he wasn't entitled to any severance at all. Uh, So his claim was dismissed, and he's going to be on the hook for costs uh, for having brought the claim. And so I guess the uh, takeaway there would be the importance of honesty with somebody's employer, mm-hmm. uh, because even if the amount of money is small, uh, ultimately, if it results in the employer just saying, look, I've just lost faith in you, I've caught you, and you're, <laughs> you're still uh, maintaining uh, this uh, position they, they don't believe to be truthful, uh, this could be the result. So uh, I think it's a, a interesting local case on several fronts. Uh, if uh, for no, no other front, uh, then uh, you might want to, Probably a bit harder when you're negotiating down the price of your used car.
0: Plainly, there's a lot of money in that business. Well, I'm just sitting here like $25,000 a month. That's where my brain stopped. And I just went, wow, that's the business must be booming for some folks. And that was the beginning. of it. That was only for the first six months. It then went up to
1: $35,000 a month plus uh, bonuses uh, based on sales. Uh-huh. Uh, and so uh, that's a Victoria used car dealership. Uh, And so, uh, you know, the takeaway there is, yeah, there's a lot of money being obviously made in that business if you're hiring somebody as a manager uh, and paying uh, that kind of uh, money on a monthly basis. Plus, you're going to be paying the uh, people who are selling the cars, right? They, I think, uh, do pretty well. Uh, and so there is a lot of money in uh, used car sales. So uh, maybe uh, contemplate that from an employment perspective and also bear it in mind uh, when uh, you're uh, thinking about how much room there might be to negotiate uh, on that used Buick or whatever it is you're looking at. Uh, somehow they're coming out of uh, uh, their transactions with lots and lots of money to uh, pay the people that are doing the sales.
0: Very good point. You and I have two minutes and 30 seconds left today. How shall we spend them?
1: Sure. I think I can summarize the last case on the docket for today. Uh, The last case on the docket is a B.C. Court of Appeal decision, uh, and it is a decision dealing with child apprehension and medical records. Uh, And the issue in this case, and it was a case that was brought uh, by West Coast Leaf and the B.C. Civil Liberties Association, is that the B.C. legislation that deals with uh, child protection, like the legislation that allows children to be removed from their parents uh, in order to protect them, Uh, That legislation has lots of pretty broad powers, flowing, no doubt, from the fact that it's so important that we keep our kids safe, right, that one would expect. But one of the powers that that legislation includes in it is a power for uh, social workers to, without any warrant or any authorization, go and scoop up all of the medical records of parents uh, and uh, the uh, Those can include things like, you know, the reason they might do that, they might be looking for things like, has the person sought counseling for drug use? Do they have a mental illness? What have they seen their doctor for? So kind of material which would be, a person would have a really high expectation of privacy over, right?
0: Hmm.
1: Um, and I suppose we can understand why we want to make sure that uh, kids are taken care of, but the Court of Appeal has found that that legislation is not, Permissible. It just goes too far. Uh, there aren't any protections here. There aren't any limits to it. There's no requirement to get uh, a warrant or a, an authorization. Uh, people who are doing social work with respect to kids can write to a doctor or hospital, say turn over all of the parents' records. Uh, and so uh, the uh, court of appeal has found that to be unconstitutional. They have, however, I should say, allowed uh, a one-year delay. Uh, in the effect of their ruling to allow the province to fix it Uh, because clearly there should be some circumstances where you might want to allow that but there needs to be some kind of safeguard in place so that it can't just be a social worker scooping up routinely all of somebody's medical records and thumbing through them given the really high degree of uh, uh, privacy uh, that that would entail. So uh, we'll have to wait, wait and see how the province responds. They've got a year But for the uh, uh, the future, it won't just be an open season on uh, flipping through your medical records if there's a concern about uh, the safety of children.
0: Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defence Lawyers, legally speaking during the second half of our second hour every Thursday here on the program. Pleasure as always, Michael. Until next week. Thanks so much. Have a great day. All right. You too. Bye now.